All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fuckleberry fins? What's going on? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. How are you? It's been kind of a rough week. It's difficult, but we're moving through it. Today on the show, Bob Mold. Bob Mold from Husker Du, from Sugar, from Bob Mold, from a lot of things that you may not know about Bob Mold. Bob Mould is an amazing guitar player and songwriter and, and, and creative force of nature. I was so thrilled to have him in my garage and talk to him. He played guitar. It was amazing. It was fucking amazing. His new album is available everywhere, including MergeRecords.com slash shop, where you get a 20% off with the offer code WTF. You can also check out his tour dates at MergeRecords.com. Bob Mould, shortly. This guy made some of the best fucking rock music in the world ever. Reinvented it. Husker Du is monstrous in a good way. And Sugar, Copper Blue, I mean, those Sugar records, fucking great. And such a sweet guy. Look forward to that conversation coming up in mere minutes. Mere minutes, my friends. What else do I want to tell you about? Uh, Marin, on the IFC show Marin is premiering on Fox TV in the UK tonight at 11 p.m., and in Ireland, I believe, and probably other places that I should know but don't know. That's the first season of Marin, so enjoy that, my friends in England and Ireland. Enjoy it. I haven't told you about, uh, well, obviously, we had the, the repost of the Robin Williams interview with uh, my thoughts in the immediate aftermath of learning of his death. Um, that's a real hard one, folks. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt a while. But earlier that day, we posted a, an amazing interview with Bob Newhart that uh, was a, a complete honor to me uh, to do. I just want to remind you that, uh, that that's up there because the Robin Williams um, interview went up the same day. Both of them legends. Both of them beautiful people. Great artists. So sad to lose Robin. And so amazing to have Bob still with us. But since I've last talked to you, I've done three of the Oddball Festival dates. I have, I'll be honest with you, man. I'll, and, oh, wait. Before I forget, Charlotte, North Carolina tonight at the Comedy Zone. Tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday. I know I was just there at Oddball, but uh, I'll be there tonight doing the uh, Hour Plus. Tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday. Come down. But I was just in Charlotte. I was just in Tampa. I was just in Atlanta doing the Oddball Festival. Now, as I said before, I'm going to be honest with you people. I, I never played for 10,000 fucking people. Are you kidding me? I've been doing comedy half my life, 25 years. You know, I could sell out maybe 1,000 in some of my good markets, really good markets. I'm more of a five to 900 uh, seat guy. 10,000 people, and I was, I was going a little crazy. I was really stressed out for weeks leading up to these oddball festival dates. Uh, the acts on the show, Jeffrey Ross emceed. It was Brent Morin, and then uh, and then me, and then Reggie Watts, Hannibal Burris, and then uh, Chris Hardwick, Aziz Ansari, and Louis C.K. That's a, that's a monster show. 10,000 seats were sold, and I was driving myself crazy because... A lot of you who know or have witnessed my evolution as a performer, I've been moving the other way. I'm not trying to get bigger. I'm trying to get smaller. I'm trying to get Mark-sized. 
I'm trying to have the same lack of boundaries and candidness and intimacy with my stand-up as I do with uh, here in the garage or when I'm having dinner. That's that's sort of what I do. Like I, I believe that the training and the craft will be sublimated, internalized, which it is after after half my life doing this, 25 years or so, and that that will all be in place and I never have to think about it. And that's the beauty of it. That That's sort of like, you know, driving in a way. That you know, the, the, the machine will take care of itself. I just have to, to be in the present, let my brain do its thing. Be in the moment, make the funny happen. In the moment, if possible. But when you're about to play for 10,000 to 15,000 people, you're like, I better have a fucking set. It better be tight. There better be tags. Because I know what happens. You get up on a stage that big with that many people, you got to roll out those jokes and you got to wait for that response to come back. And you've got to sort of get a sense of the timing of maybe 8,000 of the 10,000 who are paying attention or laughing deeply and figure out how to pace yourself. But you can't, don't leave any hangers, don't have any any sort of noodling jokes, make sure there are beats at the end, that there's closure. It's like when you prepare for a Letterman set or a short set or a four and a half minute set. I don't know if that's the greatest representation of me, but it's it's a skill unto itself to put together that set and make it punchline efficient and make it work. And it's the same sort of a, you know, effort you have to bring to a 15 minute set. I was doing 15s. Everyone was doing 15 except, well, Hannibal did 25, Aziz did 25, Louis did 30. But me, Reggie, Chris, Brent, Jeff was hosting. They were just 15 minute spots. So in my mind, it's like, how bad could it go in 15 minutes? Well, it could hurt pretty bad. But why would it hurt, man? Why would it hurt, Mark? You've been doing this 25 years. Well, sometimes, sometimes when you get in front of a huge audience, it's the loneliest place in the world. And you can just feel it. Sometimes if you're not locked in and you're not doing your show and you're just got a guy standing by himself on a big old stage in front of 10 to 15,000 people, you might want to disappear. There's a little part of you that wants to disappear, but there's another party that wants to go, look at me. Who's going to win? Well, when you're a professional, that guy. Who's going to win? That guy. The guy who's, look at me, listen to me. I'm trying to put some love out there, at least trying to make you laugh, doing a show. So I wrestled with that fucking thing. I wrestled right, you know, you got to get that first one in, you know? And I, I was I was nervous and anxious and everything else, and I didn't know what set I was going to do, and I knew I was going to lean into it too hard because I'm in my mind, I'm like, I know how to get big. I've been big before. I spent over half of my career just hammering away. And uh, am I going to have to do that? Am I? So let's get back to Tampa, Florida. First night of Oddball Fest. I'm freaking out. It's hot as fuck. It might be raining. I'm scribbling my set minutes before I have to go on. I've been scribbling it on and off all day. I want to do some some uh, some local stuff. You know, I want to plant myself in the situation. I want to hit hard. It's still light outside. But I'm not letting any of this stuff fuck with my head because I know I got to show up for work. There would have been a time in my life where I would have been freaking myself to the point of paralysis. But I've been doing this a long time. I don't need to do that to myself, but I'm still pretty scared. And I made the decision to wear my jean shorts. That's right, folks. Not only do I not know what I'm going to do exactly when I get on stage in front of 10,000 people, but I'm like, fuck it, it's hot. I'm wearing jorts. I'm going to wear jorts. That's who I am today. 
and it's like honestly tampa is one of the only places in the world where if you wear jorts you're actually pandering so i got up there with my jean cutoffs and i leaned into it and i focused and i i went i regressed in a way to old mark energy and just stayed on top of it but i killed i did pretty good everything hit it was nice it was a good feeling and i'm like all right got that under my belt everyone did great the second half of the show, it's nighttime. So they could the, there's the two things that happened there. I was talking to Louie about it. At nighttime, it's like, yeah, there's more focus because they're not looking at each other and wondering why everyone's sitting outside. But at night, they got focus. You got a stage. You can't, you, you know, that's all you got to look at. But Louie also pointed out, well, also by the a intermission, you know, they've had a few more cocktails. But either way, quite honestly, everybody killed. Everyone did great. The audiences were great. My panic was... How is this a good environment to do stand-up in? It seems antithetical. And then someone pointed out to me, dude, it, they're coming for that. It's a comedy festival. You're not opening up for a rock act. It's not like, shit, I got to do 20 before Tom Petty. Like, I, I had no idea what a fucking rush it could be. But when I went to fucking uh, Charlotte the next night, I was like, I got this. I'm going to mix it up. I'm down south. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to do a Mark Marin set. I'm going to do what I do. I'm not going to fucking freak out and lean into it too hard. Just do do what you do in that situation, Mark. You're in front of 11,000 people. Just do it. You're professional. It's fucking awesome. It was great hanging out with the comics. Had a great time hanging out with uh, with uh, Brent Morin and Ross and Hardwick. And I, uh, I hung out with Louie. Yeah, I love it. I, you know, it's great to see the guys. And, you know, I'm going to be at the ones. I'm not at all of them, but I will be at the ones in uh, Austin, Houston, in Dallas coming up. I'll be at the ones up in Mountain View uh, and the one in Irvine. I'll also be at Red Rocks in Denver. I guess what I'm telling you is I recommend it. Go out to the Oddball Fest because, you know, I was a little skeptical as a performer, but it's pretty amazing. And it's not like anything you'll ever see, you know, before. It's arena comedy and it's fucking great professional comics. I mean, Gaffigan's doing some, Burr's doing some, Silverman's doing some, Attell's doing some. Great comics, you know, everywhere. Um, I was walking around at intermission and when I was off stage with my pass, meet and greet, some random photos, watching the show from the audience, watching one of my friends up on stage do his thing in front of the 10, 11,000 people. Spectacular. I will be honest with you, though. I only wore the jorts the first night. I was thinking, like, this is going to be my thing. I'm going to be the jorts guy on the uh, festival. But uh, jorts only happened in Tampa, and that's where they were supposed to happen. You get it? You with me, Florida? Huh? You know what I'm saying. You know what's going on down there. A lot of crazy shit. All right, man, it's it's my fucking pleasure right now because I, I just getting to know this guy. We'd met a couple of times. He rocks hard. He's, a, he's an original. And uh, I, w- I was thrilled to talk to him, and I learned a bunch of really interesting stuff. So let's go now to my conversation with Bob Mould. Is that how yes, you're going to yes, wear yes, the headphones? Pretty good, yep. That, that's how you do it? Yep, that's how I do it. Stick one on your head? Yep. One on your ear? Yep, just and in case. <laughs> just in case I go deaf. <laughs> do you, how is your hearing? It's not bad. It's not bad. I 
I think I have tinnitus because yeah. it's gone through three distinct phases. Yeah. You know that first phase that I think everybody that goes to live shows, you yeah. know, at the you know, you you get to the, you get to your car or you get back on the bus <laughs> and you have that yeah, for about 36 hours. So yeah. that's the first one. Right. And then there's mosquitoes, right? Which is when frequencies start, you know, they come at you like a vacuum cleaner like like white noisy kind of things and then yeah, they, yeah, yeah. and then they just stop. Yeah. And like everything sounds different. Yeah. Okay, so there's that, and then now I've got. I started having the foghorn. Really? Yeah, which is like I'd be in bed at night, sleeping on this side, and yeah. then on this ear that I'm sleeping on, yeah. I would start hearing like. Oh come on, man! Really? But I have to assume that with with Husker Du, you must have blown your fucking brains out, no? Um, that band didn't get super loud until the very end when we were playing bigger rooms and I could have bring like tons of amps. Yeah. You know, the cymbals are a lot of what does it to people. Like yeah. in rehearsal spaces and the cymbals are at ear level and Oh, really? Yeah, that that sound that all the time. Well, you look you look incredibly healthy well, thank and you. together. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like I I saw you at Bumper Shoot. Uh-huh. With Worcester. Yeah. Yeah, and you played like songs from the entire career. Yeah. You just go through the catalog. It must be amazing to have a, a fucking catalog the size that you have. Like, I, I was doing my research, and I always get nervous when I interview musicians, because it's sort of like, I'm going to get up to speed. And then you you get online, and you're like, oh, there's no fucking way I'm going to get up to speed. No. You just, no. You, <laughs> you just, just got to talk. <laughs> yeah. But I go all the way back. I mean, I listened to, I, I got the reissue of Zen Arcade, and then I picked up an original one, and then I was just listening to that second album. Uh -huh. And... um that the pace and uh, intensity of that music is uh, is unlike anything. Yeah, there. Well, I mean, there was a lot of people in the late seventies and early eighties. I guess for, you know, for people who weren't around uh, at that time, you know, there was that first wave of of punk rock that everybody yeah. thinks about. Oh, Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren, yeah, Fashion, late seventies, right. you know, Silver Jubilee, and right. all that stuff. Yeah, and then that the next iteration was this American hardcore that you know a lot of us started. There, it started all over the country at once. Like who were the bands? Well, I mean, in, in Los Angeles, there was you know Black X, Flag, X Germs, Black right. Flag, stuff right. like that. Yeah. Forty Five Grave. You know, San Francisco, Dead Kennedy's Flipper. Then you go up to Vancouver, you know, DOA, Subhumans. Uh, down in Austin, Texas, Big Boys, The Dicks. Minneapolis was Husker Du, Replacements, Soul Asylum. All happened at once. Yeah, Naked Ray Gun in Chicago, Strike right. Under. Yeah. Then all the Discord stuff in D.C., Minor Threat, SOA, which right, is right, where right. Henry Rollins Fugazi. came from. Yep. All that kind of stuff. So, you know, it was this amazing thing where I think that first wave of of, of, of punk, you know, whether it was Ramones, American Blondie punk. Television, or the Sex Pistols Clash, Buzzcocks, the next wave was was less about fashion and more about, you know, sort of changing the 70s AOR corporate rock arena thing. We and were trying to build this network of sure. new rooms that, you know, VFW halls play for 20 bucks. You know? you, yeah. And just do yeah, just take the door or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Just and, and you guys were all everyone was into promoting themselves, flyers, fanzines, mailings. Yeah, and word of mouth and promoting other bands. So you know, and this was before the internet. This was before cell phones. You know, everybody had notebooks, and these notebooks were like sacrosanct. You know, like <laughs> yeah. I got this band's mail. 
manager's number. When we get to that town, we can call him. And I talked to a lot of guys from that world, and and it was you'd show up in town and you'd see who the local acts were to open, Mm -hmm. or you'd open for somebody that was just coming through. That it was like it was it was almost a friend circle. Yeah, totally a friend circle, and you had to sort of be like a sleuth, like okay, where's the indie record store that sells you know the hardcore punk stuff? And you'd find it, and then you get there, and they'd say, oh, there's like a show at the at the you know Indian reservation tomorrow night. You guys could probably get on that, you know. And you just and you do these things, and you have these amazing experiences at the Indian reservation in Reno. Yeah, oh, okay. With bands like Seven Seconds, they'd be you know. I remember that. It's like we went to like some. I think it was like some like a you know religious you know one of those music stores that supplies to like churches, and right. we would rent a PA and put it in a garage at this you know on a reservation and play for like forty people. Really? Yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, but that's like a specific memory. Indian yeah. reservation. Came, didn't, that didn't just pop into your well, head. I, rem- I remember that because the the flyer they instead of Husker do they called us Husker screwed you and i'm thinking oh this is a reservation of course you know so wrong so, so where, where, where did you where did you start playing guitar where'd you grow up um i was born and raised in a small farm town in northern new york a town called malone were you, were you was your family in farming uh no no it, um my mom was uh a tele she worked at the at bell telephone she was the night operator like switchboard patching oh, really? stuff and uh, back when they did that, yeah, back when you could call if you dialed zero, you could talk to your mother. Yes, yeah, be gracious, <laughs> and she could listen to all my calls. And uh, that's what happened. Yeah, that's how they figured it out. Yeah, they knew. Um, but when I was like six, six, seven years old, my uh, my parents bought like a mom and pop grocery store. So I grew up in like the Dobie Gillis setup. <laughs> Where it was the house, and then you go through the kitchen, and it was a it was like a grocery store. No, yeah. So, so were you stocking shelves and yep. stuff, and running the register, running the register, the whole thing? And what's your dad's name? Uh, Willis. So it's like that's Willis's boy. That's Willis's boy. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, oldest sister Susan and an older brother Brian. Are they all right? Yeah, they're doing good. Well, good. And then when did the guitar come in? When did your mind get blown? I mean, what was did you? What were you like in school when you were a kid? Well, um, smart kid, too smart probably. Yeah, you know, just had a gift for numbers. Did you feel yeah. out of place. Uh, yeah, for a lot of reasons. Uh-huh. But uh, <laughs> so, but my my uh, my dad was a horn player in the Air Force, but he never played music around me. But the one thing that he did was when they got the grocery store. He would have to buy cigarettes and stuff from the uh, the people who stocked the jukeboxes. Okay. And when they pulled the singles off, like in 1966, he would go and buy boxes of them for a penny apiece. And those were my toys as a kid. The 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 forty fives from yeah. the late sixties, mid yeah, to late like 60s. mid late sixties, like Beatles, Beach Boys, Dave Clark no Five, shit. Mamas and Papas, Motown, do Monkeys, you, everything. Do you regret that you don't have the box anymore? I have all of them. You still have all, all of, them? of them, except a stack of Motown ones that got stolen when I was going to DJ a soul night at in my college. Oh my! God. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh no, they sit front and center in my workroom. Really? Yeah. I look over here. You have a shelf. Mine sit right there. Now, just in yeah. a row, like yeah, how many three, three beer crates full of singles. I do that. What were they? Uh, were they with the picture covers or no? Or just with, no, like the, just no, regular, no regular dust sleeves even because they right. just came out of the jukebox. They were all beat up, and, and those were the things that you listened to early on. And do, do you remember which ones were like holy shit? Well, I just it's funny because I just did a uh, I did a show at Carnegie Hall. It was a, a song book tribute show for Paul Simon. Uh-huh. And one of the songs that I remember as a kid was the song Faking It was from bookends. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Song. And the reason I remember it is I used to memorize label copy. Uh-huh. And the running length of that song was two minutes and 74 seconds. Yeah. Because in those days you had to stay under three minutes or yeah. they wouldn't play it. Right. So they tried to <laughs> slip it through. Yeah. That's a good song. Did yeah. you play a song on that show? 
Yeah, I just played. Yeah, I played you, that. Car- uh, you played yeah. vacant. Yeah, I played Carnegie earlier this year. Yeah, and for Paul Simon. Yeah, and it, it was just a bunch of you guys playing Paul Simon music. Yeah, we had. Uh, well, the guy was like John Doe, uh, Judy Collins, Sam from Sam and Dave, the Wilson sisters from Heart. And did Paul come out at the end? Nope. He didn't. <laughs> no, he, he wasn't, wasn't even there. there. No, of course not. That's interesting. So, how does a show like that get booked? How does someone decide to do that? He must uh, have sanctioned it, correct? Well, so, yeah, uh, it's a, a friend of mine. His name is Michael Dorf. He yeah. uh, he used to he started the Knitting Factory, sure, in in New York, and then here, and now he has these venues uh, called City Winery that are showing up around the country. And every year we do this. Uh, he he does these shows that raise money for underserved kids in New York City for musical instruments and lessons. Uh-huh. So, and, and I get, and I'm very fortunate every couple of years he will have me on one of the shows. So, so that's, that's sweet. But yeah. it, so did you guys do a record as well? Um, no, it was just a number of bands played for a couple hours at Carnegie Hall and uh-huh. that was it. So you're, okay, so you're a math kid yep. and you're listening to rock and roll. Yep. And that one had an impression on you because like, that's catchy. You know, faking it is catchy. Yeah, or, what, or good vibrations. What kind of horns your dad play? Uh, alto sax. Okay. So he, he could jam? Could he blast? He never played in front of me. You never know. You didn't Not know at all? Not one note. Not one note in front of me. I knew he had the horn. He never took it out. Bizarre. But he got me the singles. And also, my grandmother would take care of me a lot. Yeah. And, and her, she cared for a woman that got struck by lightning. Huh. who was you know yeah. hard to move and hard it couldn't move on her own and in the house that this woman lived there was a baby grand and i would put on the am radio and sit at the piano and i would hear a song and i would be able to figure it out on the piano on the piano and so so you had a knack for it yeah so i heard these songs i had these singles i sort of figured out music theory what was just the lady by who got struck by lightning doing when you were doing that just uh, sitting there uh she was in the other room okay <laughs> She's getting bathed or something that I didn't. So it was like over for that lady. Um, no, she was she was okay. It was just hard, you know. It wasn't it wasn't that's, like she was that's like a, frazzled. That's either a, a strike of bad luck or amazing luck. I don't know how that goes. What um, does it mean when you get struck by lightning? I'll read into anything, Bob. I have heard people have had gotten struck by lightning at least twice. That, you've got to start thinking that you, you're not meant to be if you get struck by lightning. You got to take off the tin hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wrong headgear. Yes. All right. So you start plinking around on piano and you figured you could figure it out. Doing that, and then I got one of those little Emony plastic chord organs. You yeah. know the one where you, the, they had the chord buttons on the left and oh, then the yeah, keyboard yeah, yeah. on the right. Yeah. And then I started writing songs when I was nine. Uh-huh. So I did that for a little while. Did Husker do cover any of those? No. Oh, I'm damn. saving those till the end. Because <laughs> it all, you know how this goes. Sure, you save, sure. You save the beginning till they, the end. When they make sense again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where's my oatmeal? Exactly. <laughs> I got a sense. song. <laughs> so, I, so I would write these cute little songs about my dog and about my mom and stuff, you know. And then I sort of, you know, as I got 11, 12 years old, I started to, you know, drop away from music for a little bit, got into sports, started listening to bad, not bad music, but what my friends were listening to. Right, Townie Rock? Yeah, well, you know, like Foghat, Fleetwood sure, Mac. Fool got for into, the City, man. Got into Kiss. Yeah. And then- Zeppelin? Eh, not so, no, I hated Zeppelin. How is that? I love, I love those guys now, but because when the Beatles broke up, I remember the article in the New York Daily News- this said the Beatles are over and the heir apparent is a new blues outfit called Led Zeppelin. And I was like, there's going to be another fucking Beatles. You're a big Beatles guy? I, yeah, very loyal. Very yeah? loyal. Yeah. I'm not a Stones guy. I'm a Beatles guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, there's no room for both? Um, 
There is now, but when you're nine and the Beatles break up and they're trying to tell, sell you Led Zeppelin, it's, it's like, no fucking way. Right, I get that. <laughs> so, all right, so let's, I want to go back because I'm, I'm trying to track this. It's my belief, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Like, I listened to the, you know, the first couple of Husker Du records, mm-hmm. and you seem furious. Yes. <laughs> like, Scorched I, earth. Yeah. That was the idea. I mean, I see pictures and I'm like, oh my God, this guy looked like he was about to explode. Yes. Lots of things. Yeah. Well, how did that, where, where, how did you get there? I mean, when did you start playing guitar and when did you, you know, start, start shredding yourself from the inside? Well, I picked up, um, for my 16th birthday, I asked for and received the first Ramones album. Yeah. from my folks and when i heard that record everything changed i mean i was i was i had a i had like a like a sg copy that i bought in a sears catalog and you know i would i would like lip sync to kiss and stuff yeah and i was writing you know trying to write like songs but then when i heard the ramones everything changed i was just like this is it anybody can do this now right it's not makeup and lear jets and scarves and you know all right. that stuff it's these guys on the street playing this really funda- fundamental music yeah so that changed my world that was when i said i can learn this and i can do this i moved from northern new york state to the twin cities in the fall of 1978 to go to McAllister college yeah small liberal arts school i got a uh, i got the underprivileged full scholarship nice. my parents were poverty level so i I got that. Did they keep the store though all the way through? Oh yeah, they kept all that. But yeah. we had no money, so this right. was my way out of a. Out How'd of this you pick farm that town. school? You were just looking. Uh, I was looking. I applied to a lot of schools. This yeah. farm town, you know. By by this point, I knew I was gay. I knew I had to get out of the small town. Right. And I just knew because your options were limited, or because of the uh, hate. <laughs> um, both, and you know, just looking for opportunity, wanting wanting a better life, and uh, so I was seventeen, moved to the Twin Cities. Uh, there was a record store really close to the campus called Cheapo Records. That's where I met the drummer. Still there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I met Grant Hart, the drummer and other songwriter in Husker Du. Do uh, you guys get along now? Uh, we communicate, but we, you know, we're we're both really difficult. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's not beat Apparently. around the bush. Yeah. We both, we, both want to, we both have our ways of doing things, and we, it's you, you do this thing. I mean- yeah, yeah. Band dynamics is something is beyond me, but I guess, because like, I don't understand, I'm never in a band- but like in my mind, like when I hear about guys like you guys or like Dinosaur Jr., I'm like, you really, you can't keep it together? Or the Smiths. You know, or the Smiths. Marcy and Mara, that's Or anyway, Soundgarden. Oh. Yeah, but it's just sort of like, like, like there, there are these moments where it's like, you guys were just about to be bigger than life. Yes. But the, the, there's too big a problem. Yeah, but you're, <laughs> but, but most rock musicians have this self-defeatist thing. Like you, it's the fear of success, I think. Or, I guess. Yeah, just like, oh no, I'm going to be huge and maybe they'll figure out that I only really know three chords. <laughs> but that's all you need. <laughs> I know, I know that but now. You know, but it's funny, you know so many more than three chords. Because that's weird. So you took the Ramones on, but you were that you were just plinking around on guitar. You must have learned those Beatle chords at some point. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Learn, you know, just self-taught, figured, you know, listen to records, figured stuff out, and then... Uh, because you write, you use all those pop chords. You're not a Ramones player. Um, I was like that early on, but then I figured out how to, you know, I figured out I had to do more stuff, you know, look to like Townsend, uh-huh. you know, and that, you know, the, the Jangler open chords and stuff right. like that. Play two parts at once on the guitar. You, yeah. You're an amazing guitar player. Oh, thanks. It's, it's yeah. I got an, it's an interesting style. So, okay. So you go to Cheapo's. Go to Cheapo. We meet. Grant says, I know this guy, Greg Norton. He works at Northern Lights Records down the street. He's got a bass guitar. Maybe we can get together and play music in the basement over there because it's a bigger basement than Cheapo's got. Yeah. So we got together. We had a keyboard player for a couple shows. 
nice guy, fella, nice fellow named Charlie Pine. But like he, a synth or? Oh, Farfisa. Oh, really? So we would do stuff like Sea Cruise <laughs> and stuff. So, but it was great. So we we were playing, the first shows were at these, like a 3-2 bar in the Twin Cities. And for people who don't know Minnesota drinking, 3.2% alcohol. Half beer. Yeah, that's what they near serve. Near beer. At, yeah, near beer at a 3-2 bar. So we would do like a couple sets like Sea Cruise mixed in with, you know, Fast Cars by the Buzzcocks and uh-huh. Non-Alignment Pack by Perubu and Sea Cruise, you mean that the old song? Won't that you let me take you on a Didn't Robert Gordon, he covered that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we did, you know, we did that. Fun. Charlie liked that. Yeah. So. But then uh, at the end of the, the, we did two nights, and at the end of the second night, we asked him to leave the stage, and we had already written five or six songs, and we did those on our own. Were they and on be- the, any of the records? Uh, I think a couple might have made it on a Land Speed record. So that was, uh, this is like the spring of 79. We did that, and then we started, you know, started trying to play at the punk rock bars in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Started meeting other bands, other musicians, and... Replacements? Yeah, replacements started right about that time. Were you guys friends? Yeah, we were friends. Uh, friendly rivalry. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because you were both at it at the same time. Yeah. Well, the replacements, uh, you know, great band. Uh, there's a fellow named Peter Jesperson, who uh, worked at a record store, and he sort of took the replacements under his wing and brought them over to Twin Tone Records. Right. And then we sent a demo to Twin Tone, and they said, we don't, you know, we can't agree on it, so we don't want to work with you guys. So we were like, well, fuck y'all. So so we just said, well, we're going to do it our own way. Yeah. And then we started tapping into this hardcore punk network. And well, they're were, definitely a Stones band. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. They're a rock yeah. and roll band. Yeah. We were like, we are not a rock and roll right. band. So so we had this friendly rivalry, but uh, Paul and I would hang out and, and listen, to re- listen to music together and throw ideas around. So it was... Drink? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> what did you drink back then? Uh, everything. Yeah. But mostly, you know, like beer, cheap wine. Yeah. Depends. Different records was, you know, along the way were different alcohols. So you so. would sit with Westerberg and listen to records and have yeah. conversations about music? Yeah. yeah, and with Peter Jesperson and with Chris Mars. And yeah. We'd listen to stuff, talk stuff. Peter would try to educate us because he was the he was the record store guy. And what was his take? Oh, you know, stuff like Only Ones, you know. And oh, he, yeah, he, yeah. He another Girl, Another there. Planet, which the replacements yeah. covered. Yeah. Yep. Did you guys do that too? Nope. No. They got to your, it, they got to it first. That's the only song though, isn't it? What? what uh, isn't that their big song? What? The only ones? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I tried to listen to the rest of it. It's okay, but it's not that song. No. They 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 had a great song there, but it uh yeah you know so it'd be that kind of stuff and so you know it was a it was a great time up there you know the late seventies through the mid eighties in Minneapolis was really exciting. Well, it's freezing freezing and uh but like the, like you said all these great bands especially you guys and and the replacements come out of there but like what was um what led to like well like Arcade was this huge record for you mm-hmm. guys and was a huge record for for the form mm-hmm. yes. because i don't like i can't i listen to your music i still can't identify it as punk rock necessarily because you got all those pop chords in there and mm-hmm. there was some sort of organization around how you wrote songs that was different and how did you wrestle with that stuff i mean what was your process well when we started when we started coming out to the west coast in the early 80s we saw you know all this stuff kennedy's black flag flipper right. all this you know really nihilistic you know punk rock thing we were like oh this is sort of cool let's tap into this for a little bit you know we sort of play like this anyways and people liked it and after about a year and a half two years of that we're, we're just like man there's a lot of rules in this thing you what know like you, you gotta wear this chain that way and you gotta hate you gotta hate this particular kind of politics it was just like all these rules and we're like what are these rules about we're just we want to make music so you know, uh, with Zen Arcade, that was the big break away from hardcore right. and way toward, you know, we really wanted to make a, 
make more of a personal statement. Yeah. And, you know, as an arcadist, you know, it's a loose concept record, right. sort of uh, sort of tying all three of us together. And, you know, we had this, you know, sort of storyline of this kid that designed, you know, video games. And he made this game called Search, you know, and had this girlfriend that died. And So you guys you know, all left sat down and wrote a story. We were writing songs. And when we saw that it all fit together, then we started creating characters as a way to sort of pin the thing together. Right. And uh, then it became, you know, it's not as methodical as like Quadrophenia. <laughs> But, you know, it was pretty ambitious at the time. Yeah. And, you know, the Minutemen saw that and they were like, we want to make a double album, too. So they did Double Nickels and the Dime, you know. And, <laughs> you know, the Minutemen, for people who don't know their music or never got to see that band, I mean, to really understand late 20th century American, you know, like West Coast rock. Yeah. You know, you know that sort of funky thing. You really have to go back and look at those Minutemen records. So I, influential. It took me a long time to, to wrap my brain around mm -hmm. the Minutemen. And then, and then Firehose, because my friend Dave Cross was a huge Firehose uh -huh. guy. But even that, like, because I'm such a blues-based idiot, like, I didn't, you know, I just didn't understand the drive. Even when mm -hmm. I, the first time I heard your band, I was like, there's too much going on, and I don't, where's the hook? <laughs> I don't, where's the hook? Yeah. And, uh, but it took me a long time to get it. But the, all those, SC, uh, the SST uh, guys were, were kind of influential. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, Black Flag was so important to, the, you know, the, you know, Los Angeles, that whole, you know, anti-police culture you know ray right. pettibone with all those graphics yeah and, i mean that's that stuff was really subversive and provocative and the police would come by sst you know and you know sort of harass people who worked there in the bands and yeah so that was a so you, so you were down here do, living yeah. here well record? we would come we would come and stay for a couple weeks at a time like who'd you stay with uh we would stay we would sleep at the sst office which was not which was maybe 300 square feet yeah and people would sleep under desks. What was the idea? The what was the idea of SST? I mean, who, who's a, who's a, like a, that label? I mean, it's not, it's not around anymore. But you mm -hmm. were on their black flag on the Minutemen, right? Firehose, Minutemen, Minutemen, Meat Puppets, and then later Sound, Soundgarden, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr. I mean, that's right. They yeah. were all there. Did you feel like it was a community? Yep. Yeah, it felt like a community. I mean, Chuck Dukowski, the bass player from Black Flag, uh, he would book tours for bands, and he was really helpful to us. Uh, you know, Rollins, I mean, when, when Black Flag would go on tour, we would stay at SST and, you know, I would sleep under, you know, yeah. under the desk where Henry would sleep when he was there yeah. when he wasn't sleeping in the, in the tool shed or wherever it was. Now, were you guys all wasted all the time? Um, Hooskers could party down. Yeah. Yeah. We knew how to, we knew how to use those food stamps for generic beer. <laughs> generic beer, black and white labels. Yes. I forgot about that. Beer. <laughs> the meat puppets. You, were you friends with those yep. guys? Yeah, we went through Phoenix. They were crazy. Yeah, they were wild guys. Trippy. God, they were just like. I mean, it was like like beef heart psychedelia yeah. meets yeah. you know meets crazy horse meets super meets country. Fast, yeah, fast punk rock and you know all that like the mid '60s psychedelic stuff that they wove in. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, and they. Uh, so, I love that you guys all knew each other and you just uh, hung out. Yeah. So all right, so you do Zen Arcade, you do this big concept album, and all of a sudden now you're defining a new genre. Yes. And you're there's pressure now. Yes. And what happened? Make another record as quickly as possible. But and a don't label think record? About it. No, no. Um, yeah, we made New Day Rising came out five months later. Was, that, that was SST, right? It was still SST. That was six months later? Yeah. Uh, Zen Arcade came out, well, the first, at July 84, there was 3,000 copies pressed that sold instantly. SST didn't press it back, didn't get it back in stock till September of 84. I guess that's the, the liability of the small label. <laughs> yeah. So, Jan <laughs> yes, indeed. So, January 85, we put out New Day Rising. Yeah. And then September of 85, we put out Flip Your Wig. 
And that was, by then, the major labels were at us. Yeah. And we could have taken Flip Your Wig to Warner Brothers, but, you know, we 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 had a sense of loyalty, and we felt like, you know, on the way out that we sort of wanted to give the last record to SST. Uh-huh. And, you know, Flip Your Wig was like an amazing pop record. And, you know, in hindsight, it, it would have been much better to give that to Warner Brothers where we ended up. But, right. You know, I mean, we were trying to, you know, sort of took one for the team and try to be nice on the way out. And, and yeah. that, But was that the last record? That was the last record for SST. And there was two more Husker Du albums. Uh, Candy Apple Gray was the Warner's debut, came out in March of 86. And then Warehouse Songs and Stories was the last album for the band and Warners, and that was January of '87. Now, in this in this early community of hardcore, I mean, were you like openly gay at that time? No, um, you know how military is. Don't ask, don't tell. My thing, my thing. It seemed like in hardcore to me, it was like don't advertise, don't worry. Yeah. Right, because all the you know it was all the freaks and the misfits and the weirdos and sure. the artists and sure. punks and and there was I mean the, it was just sort of like. Yeah, you're probably gay. That's cool. Just, you know, don't don't yeah. be all gay out there and that, you know. <laughs> don't act all gay. Our bands don't do that. Well, and 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 I, you know, I mean, I you know, I was gay, you know, but I didn't I didn't have a gay identity at that point. I was sure. a guy who played guitar in a punk rock band. So angrily, yeah. Well, we're, you were you were gonna you were you were wondering where all that anger came from. You was know, that, it from that, that? Well, that was one of the things, sort of being a self hating homosexual. It, it, know, but when you say self hating, was it that you didn't accept yourself, or you were frustrated that you? Well, uh, oh no, I ac- I accepted I accepted the fact that that I was attracted to men, but I didn't un- I didn't fit into what I perceived the lifestyle to be. And I think it was probably more defined then. Yeah. I mean, it was a, I mean, that was a really, there was a really strong definition. There was that, you know, the macho leather and sort of the effeminate, you know, drag, whatever you want to call it. And also, you know, the first time that Huskers went to San Francisco was July of 81. And that was like the moment when the word AIDS was brought to our attention. And that was the moment where Reagan couldn't say the word for at least four years right and 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 act up was created around that time to to fight the uh the sort of negligent uh almost uh, uh allowing of death yeah yeah so i mean you know it's the it's to me a lot of the anger was you know not feeling like i had an identity within the community uh-huh. combined with the government telling me that i should die right and you're sort of like well fuck you all again yes but you yeah, but you didn't have a voice around that i mean you couldn't you couldn't uh, feel that you could participate in in that movement um i could have but i guess i felt more comfortable just being a musician sure like i you know i mean there were there were people at that time who were doing incredible stuff whether it was you know sylvester doing you know doing amazing stuff on the west coast you know tom robinson jimmy somerville the people who did the real heavy lifting they self-identified and that was their identity and their work mm-hmm. and to me i just i was like i just want to be my work right now well it's interesting it's because strange. like even within the work because you would think within you know, music mm-hmm. that there would be but there were definitely different camps i mean mm-hmm. there were obviously out gay performers yeah. and people who who we all assumed mm-hmm. was gay and, and and they didn't have any problem with yeah. that but it was not in the world that you were in that alt rock punk rock you know it was it was uh it was not it was not that type of world there were there were bits and pieces of it but it just wasn't my thing yeah you know so it's uh it it uh you know for better or worse i just wanted to stick to my craft i guess yeah and it was yeah. and and you wrote some great pop songs and if people go back yeah tr- they're all gender non specific 
So again, it's just it's the universal nature well, of the story. You, but did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> Like, all right, I'm going to write in code. <laughs> yeah, are you as miserable as me? You yeah. know, I mean, well, I mean, the Smiths made a thing, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, well, he's he's kind of a complicated character. Indeed. And I, people love that, so. Well, he, but he was very, I mean, he spoke to that, that melancholy, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you definitely spoke, like, when, when you, when I see pictures of you, when you were heavier mm-hmm. and sweatier, yep. you know, and, and just sort of like, it was just this, this weird rage machine. Yeah, it's like, who are these guys, how these guys get, get out? Get get away from the gas station right, attendant well, thing. Well, I, I I don't. It was it was a little nerdier than that. I don't. I think I projected that on there. Uh, no, it's cool. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, we were very unlikely. Yeah. Well, when it, I saw you play recently, it's just very interesting that you can still like your your energy is is very directed, mm-hmm. and and the, and the songs sound cleaner and better, and your guitar yeah. playing is is probably better than it was then. I'd imagine it's different. I think it's better. Yeah. Yeah. And, but but the intensity of the music is still there, mm-hmm. even even though you have some distance yep. from it. Can mm-hmm. when you play those songs, do you lock back into it, or, or is it more uh, embracing? I mean, do you, how does that how does that work? Do you time travel? Um, it, it's I don't I don't go back to that place. Yeah, and I in the songs that w- and there's certain songs, especially like side two of Zen Arcade, you know, it's just so visceral and guttural, and it's a lot of my songs, and it's a lot of anger and rage. I can't really conjure that specific emotion anymore. So, you know, within the, the huh. Husker Du catalog, I go back to the popular ones, the right. fun ones, the, right. the you know, sort of let's 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 uh, let's have a toast to punk rock kind of songs. Right. People love those. They're yeah. catchy. They're easy to play. And uh, conjuring rage is difficult. Yeah. And because it was sort of uh, amorphous. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. multi-tiered. Yeah. And, and and, you know, as 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 I've gotten older and, and, and come to come to understand myself, it's just it's it's not the most valid of emotions for me at this point. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because I have problems with rage. You do. I do. Uh, You know, it comes upon me sometimes. It's all right. Is it? It's all right. (laughs) But when you were growing up, I mean, did your parents know? Um, They... They, I don't know. Maybe they did. It was never spoken about, and even when it was apparent and then public, still not spoken about. Even when I had partners and we lived together, not spoken about. Huh? But yeah. not not hostile. Not hostile. Just don't speak about it. Right. So. And are they still alive? Uh, my dad passed uh, a year ago. Sorry. Uh, well, September, October of twelve, and uh, yeah. So that that was a that was a changer. Yeah. But it uh. But no, I mean, you know, I had a great, you know, as good a relationship as I could have with my parents, given, you know, given sort of the chaos that I grew up with and, you know, the tension, the violence, the hypervigilance that that puts in you as a child. Wait, what kind of violence? Uh, you know, just, you know, a, you know, physical stuff. You know? Your dad? Yeah, get he get mad. Oh, really? Yeah. So you grew up with rage? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, see, I, I didn't know. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. And because, you know, I did as well. It's erratic. Was he a drinker? Yep. That was it, and it wasn't erratic because it always start. It, it was, the slow boil would start on Friday when he start after knocking the cocktails yeah. back. Yeah. What did he drink? A uh, beer drinker. Oh yeah, and he just saw it happen. You could sit there in the house and it's like, okay, so hour, it was, hour it was one, like clockwork. And it was about what? And it was nothing. Just every, you know, just any, anything, everything, fucking customers, fucking this, fucking that. It's, bang, bang, it bang, 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 you know, and then like it's, you know, it's, and then Sunday night it starts to dissipate because we have to go back to school on Monday. So like when you say violence, was that towards your, you and your sister? And your, um, I didn't and, get as much of it. As other, others got it oh, more really? than me, yeah. 
Oh, my God. Well, part of that is um, right as I was born, there was an eldest child who passed. And oh, really? Yes. At what age? Uh, nine. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you? Kidney cancer. So it was that transference thing. One leaves, the, the next one comes, I'm the golden child. Oh, my God. And yeah, you didn't so know that So I sort that of kid. escaped it. You didn't know that kid? No. So when, when like, internalizing that, because I, I, see, I'm trying to sort of piece it together for myself, is that you, you, do you call it, you consider yourself alcoholic? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, you've been sober a long time? 27 plus years, yeah. And when, when, when did you first get sober? Uh, it was the summer of 86. I was 25 going on 26. I had not missed a day of drinking since I was 13. And so you started drinking at home. Yeah. Cause yeah. we had the grocery store. There was, there was, there were, you know, we sold beer, yeah. was, you know, yeah. it's like I could make a six pack disappear anytime I wanted. Yeah. So it was always there. And then when I went to college, it was always there and being in a band, it's always there. So you had all this internalized, you know, frustration, over not having a a, a, a way to, to identify sexually mm-hmm. and the, the, the way you were wired mm-hmm. by an alcoholic father mm-hmm. and fueled by the booze mm-hmm. and you had the freedom to just fucking you know, beat the shit out of your guitar. That and working in an environment where the alcoholism is encouraged. Right. Yeah. And when it was that, that is what sort of, I imagine, pulled the, push the band apart? Uh, well, just for, um, this is the summer of 86, and a number of things happened at once with Husker Du. I got sober, Greg Norton, the bass player, got married and moved to the country. He's out. And, uh, you know, Grant Hart, the drummer, got involved with a bunch of different people and, you know, went down a, a personal path that I was not aware of until the very end of the band. Drugs. Yeah, so in that 18 months, you know, it just blew apart. Yeah. But because we were still working together and then you know so that's summer of 86 beginning of 87 warehouse songs and stories come out we have like a three-month american tour big theaters and stuff the eve of the tour our office manager commits suicide oh my god so it's sort of like you know so that's a guy that's been with you for years? a couple years yeah and you were friends with him yeah yeah was every de- every day was he depressive yep oh you can't you can't he, stop it no, it it, it it was, um, I didn't know how to process it when it happened. Did you find him? No, I got a call from his mother oh. and, uh, didn't, ha- I didn't know how to handle that at all. And, uh. Had you felt like doing that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I toyed with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as much as you can toy with it. Like, well, well you, I'm going to try this. Well, no, we, you we, don't, you, don't. you know, when you're, when you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, you just do the slow style. Yes. You don't, <laughs> you don't want to commit to the. The task, yeah, which yeah. is kind of slowly disintegrate. Well, if I do that, I'm not going to be able to drink tomorrow. That's right. So it's <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's going to cut into my bar time. So that happens. The and- summer of '86, I woke up one morning, looked in the mirror, saw my dad, and just said, oh. "I got to stop this. I'm I'm not going to make it if I do this again." Yeah, that that weird that that day where you're all bloated and sweaty, and oh, like well, pale. When when you just when you see when you see the rest of your life in one snapshot. You know, and you're just like, oh my God, I am becoming the monster. I'm becoming this. I and, have to stop. And, and okay, so, <laughs> so you, what'd you do? Just stopped. Uh huh. Stopped cold. And then did you, where were you at creatively at that time? What was the uh, plan? We were working on, we were writing the music that would become Warehouse Songs and Stories, the last record that came out in 87. Our office manager kills himself, and then we go out on the road for a year. And, we're all in a van together and we're not talking. Not that we talked a lot by that point, but 
you know, everybody's looking for the exit, but yeah. nobody wants to say it. Yeah. So we go through all of 1987 and then, you know, we were out doing some shows in December of 87. Right. And then it came to light that, you know, Grant Hart had, you know, had some, you know, addiction, issues. addiction issues that, you know, that I didn't know about. I should have known, you know, I was right there. How could I not see? Yeah. Didn't Did you feel uh, betrayed? No, I felt, I, 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 I just felt like, oh my God, this is like, it's like people are dying. People are addicted. Everybody's different. Why am I here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the saddest things about the the breakup of Husker Du, one of the things that I really feel bad about is I left for my self-preservation, but in the years following, I didn't defend anybody else's choices. I just went about my business, and I think some people wanted to blame it on other people's addictions, and I'm like... No, in reality, this thing was coming apart anyways. It's just maybe that was like that showed me the way to get out. You're talking about fans or labels? Yeah, fans, or? everybody. You know, the mythology. Sure. Mythology says. And, you know, my one regret, I guess, or my one, you know, one thing that I'm sad about with that is that I didn't, I, I, I neither attacked nor defended anybody. Yeah. yeah. I just went about my Mind business. business yeah. yeah. So, you know, in a way, I guess if I'd said the things I'm saying now then, Maybe things would be different, but hey, you know you can't. Well, no. you don't know to do that. Yeah, not not when you're not when your own life. You know, not when you quit your life and start a new life. Sure, and when someone else is is in their sickness and you're in your sickness, there's no there's no way to be diplomatic. Who the hell knows what those feelings are? No idea. So yeah, so I mean, the band blew apart. It was not it was not particularly ugly, and it wasn't pretty. It just sort of dissolved like. You know, like the end of a vacation or well, something. Well, it sounded like, <laughs> you know, everyone had an agenda. It, not necessarily healthy, but it sounded like yeah, the bass player knew where he he seemed to like. He, yeah, he was he's yeah. like, I'm done. Hitting, and, the, hitting the links. And, and then Grant was like, you know, he was out of control. Well, he, 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 he had left his current family of Husker Du and moved to a newer family of guys, musicians and, and stuff that it was just a whole different circle of people yeah that so, lived I mean, like him yeah or yeah yeah so similar kind of thing and i'm just like oh, i get it and this is when I, you, I get it you hold up and made a workbook yeah at the same point as the band was blowing apart i left the twin cities and moved up uh upstate to halfway to duluth in a small town called pine city i bought a farm up there with 10 acres and chickens and still have it no i i lived there for a year and a half and i went insane so you, i had to get out you took your husker do money you like bought a farm bought a farm and sat up there and tried to figure out what i was going to do so i sort of had to reinvent myself because the last thing i wanted to do was you know make a record that sounded like husker do well that record i think they just reissued it a workbook it? yeah we just did that i that just was... listened to it i know they sent it to me oh, yeah, so i listened to the vinyl i'm big into yeah, vinyl yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's it's like a, a beautiful deep record but yeah. it's certainly not a husker do record it's a it's a it's it's definitely lower in the volume mm-hmm. a lot of acoustic yeah and just uh you know very uh lyrical and you it sounded very intimate how much early on since everyone credits you uh, certainly, everyone Husker do like you know people like you know, Cobain and the Pixies and, mm-hmm. and 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 anybody who is involved in the next wave of independent music. Mm-hmm. You, know, you guys are like mythic. Yeah. Now, how when when did you become aware of that, and who sort of did anyone guide you like into Sugar or into anything no. else? So what happened is I made two records uh, for Virgin Records with Anton and Tony. Yeah. 
got pretty deep in debt. Uh, Virgin wanted me to renegotiate the deal. Yeah. I got a new attorney, and my new attorney, who's my current attorney, you know, I've worked with him for 20-plus years, he just said, you know what? Why don't you just walk away from that deal? Go play some sh- solo shows. Go make some money. Write some songs. See what happens. So in 1991, I spent almost the entire year out doing solo acoustic shows. How'd that go? That was great, because I would just write songs and try them out for people, and it was very low pressure, no record company leaning on me. Because so, I remember that time. I remember thinking, like, how difficult is that? Because you know, when I first heard Who's Could Do, and then, I, and then when you made this transition, I'm like, where'd, where'd the other guy go? I know. <laughs> <laughs> he was just taking a break. <laughs> So, so 91, I'm doing all this stuff. And as it turns out, the, in the summer of 91, my booking agent had me working in Europe all summer. And I was playing these like, you know, these like boutique festivals with Sonic Youth, who I was friends with. And, you know, uh, Dinosaur Jr. was on a lot of the shows. And Nirvana, who I remember because I had gotten the demos for what became Nevermind yeah. as a possible producer. Really? Yeah. And Who ended it, up producing that? Butch, Butch Vig? Vig. Yeah. yeah. It worked out best for all of us. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, would, I, I wouldn't have nearly done that. Did he you? Did who produced job. the Who's Could Do records? I did, did. We did them ourselves. Yeah. Man, because, I mean, they definitely took something from you because, like, when I listen to the Who's Could Do records, everything's way up. Oh, yeah. Everything's up front. Yeah. Because I listened to a vinyl of Nevermind and it, like, doesn't make any difference because uh-huh. everything is, like, fucking, you know, way yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. must have, that must have been what they were looking for. Yeah, so, but Nirvana were yeah. on a lot of these festivals, so I would watch them, and they were trashing the stage every night, and I'd have to go out after them with a 12-string, you know, it's like I'm up there <laughs> doing my Richie Havens thing, and so just trying to keep the, trying to keep the crusties involved. How did the Husker Du fans respond? <laughs> Throwing shit, you know. Fuck you, get off the fucking stage! Really? Dinosaur Jr. Really? Yeah. That's funny, because <laughs> Jay's going out with a guitar and some pedals now by himself. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, yeah, so the, the, yeah, the irony was not lost on me. I was just like, wait a minute. I invented this. Wait a minute. You know, <laughs> don't you, do you have, you have that Deep Wound single? Yeah. <laughs> Jay and Lou and yeah. the four dinosaur? Yeah. Um, but, you know, and that was also the, a lot of those, uh, that was a lot of the uh, tour that became the year Punk Broke, you know, right. the, the documentary. Yeah. So all this is happening and I'm writing these songs and I'm thinking about making a pop record with loud guitars and then Nevermind comes out. And then I meet with, uh, at the end of 1991, I go over to England and I meet with Alan McGee, who was running Creation Records at the time, you know, real great label. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was a huge fan and he heard some songs and he had a lot of faith and he said, I'll sign you. Don't have a lot of money, but I can get you a lot of work. I said, great. I came back to America, got together with a label, uh, Ryko Disc, who were, you know, a really good indie label at the time, did two separate deals and then uh, had a bunch of songs got a bass player named David Barbie and a drummer named Malcolm Travis, got them together for what was ostensibly to be the third Bob Mould solo record. Right. We were working in Athens, Georgia, did like three weeks of rehearsing 30 songs to get ready to make these albums. Um, and uh, 40 Watt Club calls us and says, hey, do you guys, somebody canceled. Do you guys want to play on Tuesday? And we're like, oh, sure, we'll play a show. And then we're like, what are we going to call this? Yeah. And we're at a Waffle House yeah. in Athens, Georgia. I look down, there's a sugar packet on yeah. the table. I said, how about sugar? Yeah. Like, okay, cool enough. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. So the next day we're playing a show is this band called Sugar. Yeah. 
And then we go up to, uh, you know, suburban Boston and spend a month making what would become Copper Blue and Beaster together. Those are, fucking Copper Blue is such a, uh, a huge record, man. Love that record. It's fucking great record. Love that record. But then, but all of a sudden, like, whatever break you were taking, that, you're fucking back, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, On the yeah. guitar, it's like a wall. Yeah, and, and, and you know, so... Who produced those? Uh, I worked, I produced those with a friend of mine lou giordano who was an engineer out of boston who actually did live sound on the road for husker du for the last couple of years so he knew yeah, oh yeah 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 we we all yeah we all we were the so, ar- we were the architects of this thing you yeah know, in ways so, so we're husker du fans like he's back uh the uk press was very much like oh my god he's back yeah. and, and again this is in the this is nine months after nevermind yeah so it's you know his, the history is husker du sets the table for the Pixies, My Bloody Valentine, Nirvana, Shoegaze, all this stuff. Yeah. And then I go to creation, you know, and in Europe, it's like, he's back. Yeah. Right. So it's it's like they set the table inadvertently for me. Yeah. And people, you know, and the thing is, if people always get on me about this. You know, do you feel vindicated or do you feel like, you know, I'm just like, man, this stuff just happens. <laughs> You know, it's like I, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm fine with loose change. It's right. Cool. I don't need, a, I and, don't need the whole bank. And you're working too. Yeah. I mean, it's it's important to keep working. Yeah, I'm working and working and working, and we're touring hard, and we're going to Japan for the first time, and you know, all these amazing opportunities. For so, Sugar is this three albums in three years condensed insanity. Is that did that sell more than anything else you did by far? Yeah. Yep. Because that, that was because the the entire culture of music changed. Yeah, you were at the beginning of it, and and you didn't you didn't earn off of that yep. a, a lot. But then, like what you invented came back around, and you reentered it, and yep. it killed. Yeah, Pixies, Nirvana, they set it up. Yeah, and I just come back, and and then everybody's used to it now. Then yeah. all of a sudden, vocals slightly under distorted guitars. Yeah, isn't that difficult to understand? Right, it's so. it's become mainstream music. Yeah. Oh, it's fucking sweet. Yeah, so it's nice. So yeah, and and even to this day, you know, when people do that, I'm like, you got to be kidding, you right? Know? It's like what? <laughs> you know, me and Butch Vig were working together, you know, in the old Smart Studios in Madison in '84, making Tar Babies records together. I know this drill. <laughs> it's like we sort of did this thing. Y'all yeah. did it together. Yeah, it's like we just do this thing because yeah. we love music. You know. Yeah, but you guys are at a level of it that you know to be as cre. It's a weird thing, and the same with comedy or anything else is that. Who the hell knows who makes the cut? But usually the guys who hang in are the guys who really you know deserve it. Slow and steady. Yeah. Yep. And what 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 do you do? I mean, I know you've put out a lot of records since the Sugar Records, mm-hmm. but what were some of the things that you you let yourself do that you never thought you would do musically? Uh, well, I mean, after Sugar, you know, after Sugar disbanded uh, in '95, I started working on uh, you know a solo record at home, and it was a lo- it was more lo-fi. You know, where are you in, living? Uh, I was in Austin, Texas at that time. And uh, really into stuff like Sebado, Guided by Voices. So I was like, you know, it'd be really fun to just make a record at home. And, yeah, I started getting into that, made a couple solo records, one in 96, one in 98. And then uh, the record that I made in 98, Last Dog and Pony Show, was my farewell to rock. You know, 20 years in the van, 20 years being a rock guitarist. I wanted to be a gay guy. Yeah. yeah. You know, I moved back to New York City. <laughs> And I was like, I want to get my other life going. How, how old were you? When uh, you 38. So you're like, no, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready now. I'm ready to take on the Shit. identity. What I'm going to the gym. I'm <laughs> hanging out on 8th Avenue. You know, I'm going to Fire Island. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. So in 1999, I really got into the gay lifestyle. And, uh-huh. and the, you know, in, in New York, that was amazing at yeah. that time. Yeah. You know, it created all of the archetypes that, you know, everybody copies. Uh-huh. 
you know the and big, what what'd you lock into uh what did i lock into um are you a bear now but then i didn't know i was yeah. trying to shave my body and have uh, six-pack abs and all that weird shit you did i tried it didn't it's so work funny. so you went through what a lot of gay guys go through in their mid-20s yeah or their late teens yeah, yeah totally yeah. yeah like yeah weird colored so, underwear how do i shit. fit in yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So yeah. So I did that, and that led me to electronic music. So, well, I, did, but emotionally, did was there were you? Was it a relief? It was just it was finding a new way of life. But I mean, like, like I have to assume that, like, like to make that decision and to engage that freedom finally mm-hmm. to say, like, all right, let's let's feel this out. Yeah. I mean, it takes a certain amount of courage, yeah. even though you're compelled to do it, you know, anyways. But I mean, was it fun? Was it? Yeah. Like, well, you know, I was I was longtime partner to Anne Monogamous, so I didn't really, you know, right. wasn't like, you know, wasn't fruit salad all the time. Yeah, for me. yeah. It was sort of like just let's hang around, see what happens. Yeah. And uh, you know, met, you know, it was crazy, you know, like hanging out with like porn stars and Mm -hmm. you know all this you know this stuff that you think you know like you're like oh my god this is so gay (laughs) and it's really and it's really fun so i'm doing that in 99 but like in august of 99 i got a call to go work at pro wrestling what yeah do you not know about this i i mean i i I think i I saw a little bit i forgot i'm glad you brought it up are you a big pro wrestling guy? Yeah, that was my thing as a kid. You know, there were kid, you know, kids like baseball, kids like you know, like comic. Well, books you like Kiss, so I was like pro wrestling, Kiss, spectacle. Yeah. So you know, pro- how did you get that call? Um, I uh, a friend of mine named Gary Jester worked at a yeah. company called World Championship Wrestling, and that was the TBS Turner AOL Time yeah. Warner Wrestling. Uh-huh. They were the direct competitor to Vince McMahon right. and the WWF at the time. Uh huh. And they had they were having a shakeup in the in the in the creative side, and I had been giving them ideas all throughout the '90s, and uh, they knew that I knew the business, and they said, "Why don't you come in and be a creative consultant?" So I got they in. They just there. knew you knew as a fan. Yeah, they knew that I was smart. You yeah. know, I'd gotten smartened up. I knew how it all worked. And know? they were looking for scripts. They were looking for new ideas. Yeah, something fresh, something different. So yeah. I went down there and just got. Th- you know, thrown into the lion's den, and it was amazing. It was a really amazing time, and it worked. Um, it worked as best as best I could. There was a lot of things that derailed my ideas. Other yeah. people came in, and I did not have seniority or power. I was just this guy who had really good handwriting, uh-huh. could produce a show on the fly. Yeah, good with math, good with you know, kept my head down, said yes sir, no sir, and but you, but you had a good time. I had a great time. I mean, some man, that's a whole separate book. Yeah. That yeah. thing. I mean, it was really, really, really great stuff because I, you know, I got there like they brought me in on a on a Sunday night for a pay-per-view and I watched it in the production truck with the new boss. Uh-huh. And he's like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? What do you think of this? I said, well, this should have gone longer that you don't want to really expose that guy's weaknesses. You know, this storyline could work, but I'm not really sure it makes sense. Uh-huh. And so they're like, OK, so come to TV, come to come to Monday, Monday Nitro tomorrow and meet with Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. So they put me in a room with Hogan right off the bat, you know, yeah. the, the shrewdest politician in the business. At and the time. were you a fan? Um, I was a fan of the business. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> to, to be nice. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I'm talking with Hogan. You know, I'm running this idea by him. And, you know, he's like, hmm, uh-huh. sounds good, brother. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, all the time saying, who's this fucking Mark? You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, so, you know, like, yeah. where'd this guy come from? And, but, you know, I hung in there, stuck it out. They found a spot for me. And uh, as it turns out, the job that I ended up with was uh, working at uh, my my showtime job was gorilla position. And to explain what gorilla position is, 
in the old days up in Northeast Wrestling, you know, of uh, you know Vince Senior and Vince, you know Vince McMahon, and they had a guy Gorilla Monsoon. He was a wrestler, yeah, and he was the one that would uh, in the old days before wireless and everything. During the matches, he would he would come down. He'd walk from the back to the ring, go down and just nod at the timekeeper and walk back. And that was the signal for the guys in the ring to finish. Yeah. And he would sit behind the curtain and give everybody their instructions. So they call it the gorilla position. Uh huh. So doing Monday Nitro, we're doing three hours of TV live every Monday night. We would start at eight Eastern. WWF would start at nine Eastern. I'm sitting behind the curtain. Our show on our show with time code on the left side, their show with time code on the right side. I'm sitting there with a script, 16 segments that we have to do in three hours and eight minutes, and we have to hit our marks. So the first five segments, the first hour, segment six, we have to get on the air at 8:59, so that we can trump their hot. Start open. it right. We trump their hot open. Right. We do. We do all our ballyhoo and you know it's Ho- weird that Hogan it- running and all that shit. So I'm sitting there. I'm the last stop for all these guys to get their lines, their cues. So I'm doing this watching their show so when they go on commercial i get on a wireless mic and tell the refs they're on break speed it up so that we try to do gimmick yeah, we're yeah, doing yeah. all we're doing all this zabada to keep You're people actually, on our show the two networks are wrestling yeah we're com- <laughs> we're competing and i <laughs> yeah. and i'm telling and i'm sending signals to the boys in the ring through the ref who's got a wireless that's hilarious oh yeah it was nuts the stuff that we did but it was a blast oh right? yeah, it was a blast and met great people you know just great people kevin nash who was like nwo guy he, you know big Big Sexy. He was uh, Diesel in the WWF. Uh-huh. And he came over, and he was sort of running the locker room. Yeah. And at the first booking meeting, I sat in, and I didn't say much, but I was taking good notes and keeping stuff straight for everybody. We took a break and walked out, and he goes, you're a musician. He goes, are you gay? And, you know, this is the first, like, second day in. And I'm yeah. sort of like, uh, I said, yeah, I am, Kev. Is that going to be a problem? He goes, nah, a lot of gay friends. You smoke pot? <laughs> Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> like sushi? I'm like, hell yeah. He's right on, brother. You're riding with us. <laughs> the initiation. Yeah, it was just, and then we were, you know, it was sushi like a group of us. Yeah, sushi, uh, it's fun. sushi pot, talking, sitting up till three in the morning in the hotel, talking old 70s Detroit wrestling with the Sheik and Boba Brazil. And, oh, my God. You know, so you're really crazy in. shit. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, Bobby, got, Bobby got, Shane, the original king of wrestling in Florida. Uh-huh. Crazy, you know. Watch the donkey matches in Amarillo in 58 and all the shit, you know, gimmicks, you know, yeah. try to come up with shit. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I interviewed, I don't know a lot about wrestling, but I interviewed Punk, CM Punk. Yep. And, you know, he's a great guy. Yep. And, and I saw that documentary, Beyond the Mat. Oof. That's tough. Like, what's that guy's name? The, uh, uh, the Jake Roberts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jake, he's totally turned his life around. That's amazing. One of the other ex-wrestlers, this guy Diamond Dallas Page, came up with this yoga thing. Yeah. And he also, like, Jake was one of his mentors in the old days, and he brought Jake out to Atlanta to live with him, and they started filming it like a reality thing, uh-huh. and he got him clean. He oh got him clean God. and sober. He looks great. Really? And Jake was one of the best minds in the business. It was yeah. sad to watch that movie, but he's turned it all around. That's amazing. Mick Foley, Terry Funk. Oh, Mick's a work great guy. with Terry Funk. <laughs> Mick's a great guy. Yeah, Mick yeah. is... Mick's, I've met Mick Real, a couple times. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. Yeah, really good writer, really great, just does I, a lot of fun stuff I, for kids. My but. my partner, uh, Brendan, in, 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 in this thing, in mm-hmm. WTF, he's, he's, he grew up with the wrestling thing, oh, so he, he, he knows all about it, and he gets real excited about yeah, it. Yeah, Punk's a good guy. I've, I've never met... I never met him. I, you know, I knew about him like back in 
you know, 2001. You know, Cold Cabana? Yeah, I you know Cold. He's got a, he's he's got got a podcast. Yeah. yeah. yeah, he's, yeah. He, 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 Art he, of Wrestling. He, right. And he was, yeah, he modeled it after this show. Excellent. And uh, and I interviewed him when I was up in uh, Chicago. Yeah. And he told me about that whole, you know, that whole independent wrestling thing. And Well, you, well, you know, know, punk was like straight edge, like, you know, right. the, the X on the hand, like Discord, Minor yeah. Threat, DC yeah. Punk Rock. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all good. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it is very, it, the spectacle of it, the show of it, the people that love it really love it. And it's one of those things that i just like i think i'm a little too old to lock into but i i definitely appreciate that people really fucking dig it and it bums me out when people are like oh that's fake it's like well, no it's no it's, it's predetermined it. yeah it's choreographed it involves complete and absolute trust in the person you're doing all this crazy shit with because yeah. they could accidentally drop you on your head and kill you yeah and it's like it's like Cirque du Soleil meets like Shakespeare. No, it's I, these morality plays. Exactly, that, that's yeah. what it is. You've got your you've got your face, and you've yeah. got your uh, yeah. You got babies and heels. And yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all that's yeah. So okay, so you're doing wrestling and you're doing electronic music. Yeah, what the hell? It, yeah, how, that, did that stick? That didn't stick. Um, yeah, it did sort of stick. It got me to a couple different places. I made an electronic record called Modulate in O2 that. A lot of good ideas, but I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, 03, I moved to uh, Washington, D.C. and uh, met a fellow named Rich Morell, and we started these DJ nights called Blow Off mm -hmm. in 03. You know, I got to D.C., I didn't have any friends. Yeah. You know, I just split from my partner once we got there, and I'm like... And you moved to D.C.? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from New York. So it was... Uh, it's weird. Yeah. Um, so in so 03, started DJing and, you know, did... You know, got and you know that's sort of how I was expressing my electronic and dance side more, uh -huh. and then you know started easing back towards guitar rock as the as the aughts went on. I made a record in '04 called Body of Song. Uh, District Line was I think '07, uh, Life and Times in '09. Yeah, and then that sort of you know gets us up to when I started working on the autobiography. And you're comfortable. Uh, more comfortable, yeah. Well, I think it's fascinating to me that it, it, you did something that rarely happens in an artist's life is that, you know, you hit some sort of place where you allowed yourself to evolve mm -hmm. and, and to continue to become comfortable with yourself. Mm. That was like, that was the, you know, you knew there was a price to pay on some level. Yep. Yeah. And, but it was more important for you to, to realize, you know, what you're fully capable of and, you know, take risks and, and, and try to embrace, you know, the things you were afraid of. Are you, are you the kind of guy when you make a shift, when you know you're going to make a shift like that? Are you like a, when I go, I'm gone? Like, here's my thing. I'm going to move on. So I'm gone. I'm not looking back. Well, I, you know, like real hard turns. I don't know if I ever had anything that defined me that that specifically because i was uh, as an artist if i call myself mm -hmm. that it was just a it was different it was just a a, a sort of a, the way i framed it is it took me about 20 years to arrive in myself mm -hmm. so if i look at my anger period which mm -hmm. was not marketable no you know no one was celebrating me mm -hmm. i wasn't you know I, I wasn't paid to be that way well well no i mean i was a, a marginal act that had you know clearly anger problems and I, I think as it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Like I believe that, like, well, everyone must be angry and bitter inside. So why aren't they relating to me? And then yeah. I realized that, well, no, no, a lot of people aren't that way, and, and yeah. it's not necessarily entertaining. So it was never that drastic. It was sort of a, sm a slow 
coming into myself is okay. what it really was. Okay. Yeah, because I why I ask is because like these things were end of rock, beginning of gay. Oh, and pro wrestling. What? Yeah. yeah. You know, like I would just do these like sort of real abrupt breaks. Well, you had it was like well that that was an opportunity that you chose to embrace. I mean, you didn't see it coming. It wasn't mm-hmm. like you were like I'm pounding on the door of the pro wrestling world. Yeah. yeah like yeah, that. Those are those decisions where it's like, well, that sounds fun for a while. Yeah. And this why isn't going to happen again next right. year. I better do it now. Sure. Why not <laughs> yeah. do that? Yeah. Well, that yeah, that's different. So now, um, how did you, like, I want to come back to this in the sense that I, I know your father passed away mm-hmm. and that you had, now that I know that there was this, uh, you know, this horrendous dynamic that you were able to, to transcend somehow. It was what it was. Yeah. It was what it was. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the, one of the things. But are you at peace with it? I mean, did oh, you, yeah, was yeah, it yeah, a slow yeah, death? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a long, it was a, lo- yeah, it was a long, a long, a long, uh, last lap for him. It was, it was tough, you know, it's a couple of years. You know COPD that you know, and then eventually they you know found the you know big tumor and lung cancer, and um, we you know had some really good time together towards the end. You know, uh-huh. both when he was very aware and as as he was transitioning out, and uh, it, it it was really you know my dad was this gigantic figure in the family that you know uh, was never challenged. And, you know, had, had made it hard, you know, so, you know, my, you know, my, my siblings have different views and I just felt like I have to really go and try to understand his life while I have the chance to try to learn about my grandfather, his father and the stories. And then, oh yeah, it's this way. Empathy, compassion. I'm so sorry. Really? I, I had no idea. And then it's okay. Huh. You know, and then all of a sudden it's like, of, of course, everything's forgiven now. It all makes sense now. Wow. And, you know, so then, you know, it's, so now I'm the messenger yeah. to the others and trying to do that. So did, did, did he apologize? I didn't, didn't want one. No. I just wanted to know what happened. Yeah. You know, is, is, because we all have, you know, this is the thing you're, you, you tell stories. I tell stories. Yeah. We do this thing. We, we unknowingly build these legacies. Everybody in the world does. And if you can't get, cl- if you can't create clarity with your legacy before it ends, it's, it's sort of, it can be lost, misunderstood or tumble down generations. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course you, you catch it and you, you know, I, you know, again, the day that I, in 86, when I looked in the mirror and saw my future and uh-huh. I didn't want that one. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it was, it was great for me. It was great for me. It gave me a lot of clarity, a lot of extra clarity beyond the things that I had figured out. Uh-huh. You know, it, it, it just, it, so yeah, I mean, absolute peace, absolute peace. That's good. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as much as, as much, you know, I'm sure there'll be, you know, there could be flare ups at any point, but it's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy that I took the, I'm happy I took the time and took, you know, accepted the challenge, I guess. That's great. To me, it just really, I needed to know the story. Huh. I needed to hear the, the story from the source and not the, not the, you know, the mythology or the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the realities we create, we make the distance from our families and create these realities, you know, and it have, you know, and then we have this story that we carry. And then, you know, when you find out like, wait, you, somebody took out chapters four through eight. Right. <laughs> you know I mean? And it's also why wrestling is compelling <laughs> is that those stories you know, are very 
there's a there's a line when it's good it's amazing yeah yeah how did uh, you you wrote the theme to the daily show yeah and I remember that, and and because you're friends with Liz Wednesday, yes. So she, it, how did that happen? Do you still make a few bucks every time they play it? Yes, that's great. I'm, I'm grateful for that. It's it's it, it was a wonderful thing. Liz Winstead and I were friends in Minneapolis in the '80s, uh-huh. and hung out a lot together. And she was one of the original creators of the Daily Show with Craig Kilborn. Yeah, it was. Uh, God, who were the other? Yeah, Craig was the Craig was the original host. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then things changed later and John Stewart came in. But but uh, Liz came to me with, you know, we're doing this. We're putting the show together. We're going to call it The Daily Show. And, you know, we'd like you to you know, do you have anything that would work really good for theme music? And I said, well, Liz, I just finished a record and I have two instrumentals that I think might be OK. And I'll you know, I'll let you hear them both and pick the one you want. And they picked the and that was a had a dummy title dog on fire because uh-huh. I couldn't come up with any words. And uh, they I recorded a version for the show. Yeah. And that became the theme and is still the theme song to it's this great day. That he kept it. Yeah, it's really I'm so grateful. Yeah, I'm really, nice. really grateful for that. Other people, you know, people re-recorded it and changed it a little bit. But I mean, I'm still, still the creator. So it's cool. That's nice, man. Yeah, that's really. A, great. That's, a, that's nice to make money while you're sleeping. Yes, <laughs> I like that. All right. So do you want to play or you feel like it or no? Really? I'll play a song. Yeah, give me a song. All right. Hold on. Oh, let me yeah. set it up. Okay. Let me see. All right. Song. All these songs I write for you They tear me up, it's not hard to do Listen to my voice, it's the only weapon I kept from the war From the war From the war from the war And I can soothe every ailment you endure And I can see into the future most assured well, I don't have a choice It's the only voice I know From the war Up from the war up from the war Up from the war and Everything we made Reduced to dust You were the one who taught me most to Carry your remains Your emblem and your name Nothing left will ever be the same Was violent and long 
Weeks turned into years, but we kept on keeping on. The ringing in my brain is what remains. It's what remains. It's what remains. This war has worn me down Broken dreams and a hole in the ground Don't give up and don't Great. Oh. Thank you, man. It's a heavy deal, right? It's a very heavy deal. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming. Thanks, Mark. It's been really fun. I'm a big fan. I Love the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks man. for having me. I appreciate it. Who knew? Did you know that stuff? Professional wrestling? What was that? What? Huh? I love it. I love Bob Mold and that song was I I love when people play in here. I, I love what I do. <laughs> what can I tell you? Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Seriously. Wow. Boomer lives. <laughs>